Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Today is part two of a three-part series excerpted from my course, Embodied Values and Virtues. We're focusing on excellence, one of my favorite topics, and apply this to the domains of soulmates and passion work today, the person and work that is inextricably intertwined with your destiny. And spoiler alert, doing your best with what's in front of you is the path to get there, and we're not entitled to anything we haven't yet earned. As I mentioned, this series is from the course entitled Embodied Values and Virtues, which you can find at courses.clearandopen.com. Speaking of courses, I'm excited to announce my next course begins September 22nd, 2022, and it's called Cultivating Soul Essence, Accessing the Deepest You. Have you ever had the sense there was a deeper, bigger version of yourself that doesn't express in your life? Or maybe it's your experience that it does express, but not for very long and not reliably. Do you hunger to be that version of you, deeper, more often, bigger? In my picture, that deepest self is actually the soul, and we can be that soul in embodiment by doing two things, tracking and healing our shadow issues that cover wounds and cultivating access to soul. My last course, Light and Shadow Themes, was mostly about identifying and tracking shadow stuff. This course addresses the other side of the coin, the cultivation of soul. Both are necessary. This course will include guided meditations, one-on-one coaching, and assignments to help participants directly access the deepest part of themselves and embody that in daily life. I hope you can join us. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. So I want to talk about passion path. Passion path is, let me back up. There are two hallmarks in my picture for what a mature human being has in their life. They have a healthy relationship to a soulmate and a healthy relationship to a passion path. I'll define what passion path is. It's important though, first to frame because I made a comparison, most people are not with a soulmate romantically. Uh, it's my picture. We have about a dozen or so possible soulmates in one lifetime. Uh, it's not just one like the romantic comedies insinuate. Don't worry if you blew it with one. Uh, there are many others. They, they don't always align. You got many, I wouldn't say many, a dozen or maybe two dozen, a 12 to 15 sort of chances. Um, so that's not a lot of chances, but it's not, uh, you know, one chance either. It's a lot fairer than your average carnival game. For some reason, I think of that. So if you work at it, it's, it's possible before you meet your soulmate, if you're not with your soulmate, and there's another really good analogy to work here that hopefully I'll connect before you're in a relationship with your soulmate, you are in rehearsal relationships also known as processing relationships, where you're processing stuff so that you can get ready to meet a soulmate. 
But just because you meet a soulmate doesn't mean it's forever because a soulmate can be just for a segment of your life. It could be just a chapter. The soulmate, that's the person you're destined to stay uh, with for the rest of your life. If that's something you called in this life, um, that can sometimes take multiple relationships and even several soulmates to warm up to that. Because the fact of the matter is, if you were to take someone who's not ready to be with their soulmate and just sort of pick them up and put them in that, they would flame out. They wouldn't be able to handle it. They'd be too triggered, too immature. Um, the, the, the goodness, actually, because our defenses actually steer us away from goodness unconsciously. So you, typically, we have to deal with a whole lot of suffering and parent projections before we can actually begin to tolerate the goodness of real romantic love. So we all say we want real love, but learning how to actually digest it uh, takes quite a lot. But that's not the subject of this course or this uh, or today. So how does that relate to work? Your passion path is the work equivalent of your soulmate. Your passion path is what you would do if you didn't have to work. It's the work you would do if you didn't have to work. Because if you have to ask 100 people what they would do if they didn't have to work, the vast majority of them would say travel. Yes, very good, Ed. And so when I'm asking people about to try to get to what their passion path might be, their soul work, as it were, I say, and you can use this question on your friends, family, employees, et cetera, mentees, uh, what would you do if you didn't have to work? And you can't say travel. You always have to say that. And people will get a kick out of it because they were about to say travel. Travel is not passion work. It is a diversion. I, I love how in, in uh, Latin or in Spanish, which comes from Latin, uh, divertido, uh, the, uh, the word for fun, it comes from the root diversion. It's by definition, not the center path. We don't have that. I don't know what the root of fun is. It must be old English or yeah, probably must be old English because it's not Latin, but it's by definition, a diversion. Diversion from what? your passion path, what you're really here to do. So the first thing to consider is for everyone and anyone, there is something you're here to do. The same way, not for everyone, but for most people, there is someone here you're supposed to meet. But how many people have given up on the soulmate and they're spending decades with the good enough relationship that's maybe 50% good, 50% bad, or they have focused on the good enough to you know, just make it good enough. And how many people have done that? I'd say even more so with work, where people are satisfied with doing work that is not their deepest passion, their truest expression of their most authentic soul self. That's your passion work. That's your passion path. In both cases, what is amazing about them, but also why we tend to unconsciously steer away from them is because what we think about with soulmates and with soul work, we think, oh, if I could do this, I would be happy all the time. It would just be awesome. If I could be with a person like this, it would just be awesome. It would be terrific. A true soulmate tears you apart and reorganizes you like a caterpillar that turns into goo on the way to becoming a butterfly. True soul work does the same thing. In both cases, they give you 
all sorts of things that you've always wanted and a bunch of prices that you never wanted to pay, but suddenly have to because it's unavoidable. So in the case of, I'm using the, the soulmate thing because I think the soulmate thing, because there's so much more, uh, I don't know, sort of fictional lore about the and romantic comedies. Name me a single film that's about finding your soul work. Maybe, you know, if the 1950s uh, iteration of um, uh, the Fountainhead by, uh, um, by Ayn Rand. That's about soul work. What's the guy's name? Howard Rourke. Anyone read uh, that? That's about a guy on the path to finding his soul work. And he's an architect and he refuses to follow any of the architectural norms. And, you know, he's, um, he's, he's a hero. He's an, an Ayn Randian hero because he won't listen to anyone because he's following his, what he thinks is his destiny. So that there's one fictional thing about finding your soul work. I'm, I'm sure there are others, but I, I, I don't know. Um, but you hear about this kind of stuff like uh, Sylvester Stallone, for example, a story I tell a lot because it's a fascinating one. He wrote Rocky, which I didn't know when I found out about this 10 years ago. He wrote Rocky. He was a screenwriter and he was a penniless uh, screenwriter and actor in New York. He'd sold his dog at one point um, and he was trying to sell Rocky and it took him two years or something to get any interest at all. And finally, a, uh, somebody wanted to buy it. And he said, OK, I get to be Rocky. And they said, no way. Uh, you suck as an actor. You don't get to be Rocky. And he said, too bad. You can't have the screenplay of them. Think about that moment. I think about this often. Think about that moment. You're out of work. You sold your dog. You're so poor. Somebody shows interest in your screenplay. Do you know how many screenplays get written every year and none of them ever get sold? Somebody wants to buy it. And you have the balls to put the condition of you get to play the lead when your only acting experience is being the Italian stallion in a porn movie, which is true. That's where he got that name from. That was his situation. And he said, no, I get to be Rocky. And then he was. And then they said no. And then like a year later, finally, some um, studio let him do that. And the rest is history. He knew acting was his passion path, which is quite remarkable because he wasn't a very good actor for the first like 20 years of his career. And he's not bad now, I think. You know? I mean, he did Rocky because he was basically playing himself, which is you know, like the Tony Danza school of uh, acting or uh, yeah. But he knew somewhere in him, he knew this is what I'm supposed to do. That's passion path. And I'm sure he could have gotten a job. He could have sold out. Uh, and you hear this about uh, in lots of situations where people have the opportunity to go for it without a net uh, and it works out for them. And sometimes they'll even say it was really important. What's the phrase, you know, the, the burn the ships so that the settlers have nowhere to go back to, you know, that kind of orientation. I'm not saying this is always necessary because you can make that kind of commitment and be completely wrong and then end up having to, you know, be a 55 year old temp. Uh, in this, and he's stuck in New York City or something like that could have happened to him. And I'm sure there are plenty of actors where that's exactly what happened. So what's the difference? How well you know yourself, your ability to tune into your own soul so that you know accurately to some degree what your destiny really is. So when I, uh, to tell a more personal story, um, I was 22 23, I was living in the Bay Area, and I thought I wanted to be a career martial artist. That was the path I was on. That was my thing. I'm going to have a dojo, and I 
you know, was working on my second black belt and a second art. And I was, I was, I was good. I wouldn't say I was great, but I was good. Um, and uh, the leaders of the dojo, the Aikido dojo I was training in, they had a side business where they did management consulting using Aikido as a leadership thing, which is not uncommon. There's lots of Aikidoists in the world doing that. And they would bring people on their gigs um, to throw around for demo purposes, because these guys were in their 50s. They, they couldn't take big falls anymore. So they would bring, bring uh, uh, dummies like me to, to throw around and, you know, maybe pay my hotel room or something. And, you know, and, and so I'd get to go around and show people really basic stuff and uh, represent the dojo and all that. Um, but I never got paid for it. But I always wanted to go on these gigs because I thought it was mind blowing just teaching some executives, some basic, really thing, basic thing and seeing their eyes light up and seeing um, that, uh, you know, their whole world could change like that. I thought that was amazing. And so I was 23, had really no relevant work experience whatsoever. And I decided in that moment, I wanted to be a management consultant. <laughs> and I was like, how do I, how do I get there? I'm like, these guys have all this experience. It's really difficult to break into. I had no relevant work experience. And um, I was a recruiter at the time and the dot bomb happened in 2000. I was out of work for three months or so. And then I met someone at an event and said, so what do you do for work? She said, I'm a business coach. I said, that's, that's crazy that I want to do that. Are you hiring? As a matter of fact, we are. And three weeks later, I had a job in Emeth. So, and they wanted to train people with no experience whatsoever. That was 20 years ago. So somehow in me, I just knew that was my destiny or it was for a while to be a business coach. It's since evolved from then. Because similar to uh, what Ed was talking about, business, I got really burned out on business coaching at a certain point, I don't remember, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and when I saw the limits of it, it drove me crazy first. And then it drove me into psychology. And then it drove me, when I found the limits of that, it drove me into spirituality. And then I just needed to learn all the possible human potential, human development, development models that made sense to me to bring them into the business world, because that just seemed to be the kinds of people I was attracting. And so when I launched, I sort of rebranded myself with Clear and Open, I don't know, four years ago now, that was the first official, I'm a spiritual, psycho-spiritual teacher is now what I call it for business leaders. I don't know if anybody else is calling themselves that in the world. And that was terrifying for me because, um, you know, the closest version I know of that person is the uh, Indian guy from Silicon Valley, who is a parody of himself, <laughs> who works with Gavin Belson. If you haven't seen Silicon Valley, the series, I highly recommend it. So it was like, well, will people take me seriously? Will I lose the clients that I have? Uh, is this a viable thing? And I'm still taking risks with that. So that's just uh, an example of Passion Path is not something like soulmates. It's not something that just falls in your lap and you're happily ever after. Um, you have to earn the hell out of it, one. Uh, and I'll talk about that related to excellence soon. You have to earn it. And you, how you earn it is, yeah, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But once you do find the minimal shallows of it, it challenges you to be the most authentic, real you because it won't work without the most authentic, real you. 
the same way you will not attract or maintain a relationship with your soulmate if you're not being the most deepest, truest, most authentic you, because it's a soulmate, it's soul work. So if you're being significantly less than you as soul, you won't find it. And what I would assert is that until you embark on the soul realization journey, you are operating 70% false, 30% true to your soul. You're up, the average person is 70% false, 30% true, 70% strategic, 70% inauthentic, 70% less than whole, and only 30% or so true. So you have to try to turn those numbers around and you have to be minimally 51% soul in embodied human to be able to, uh, I mean, there are edge cases, of course, but to have a, a healthy non-codependent relationship with both your soulmate and soul work. And as Ed was speaking to, that transition can be a significant risk. You're good at something, you're making money doing it, it's accepted, uh, why change? You're with someone that's mostly pretty good. Does it meet every romantic dream you've ever had? Well, no, but who really has that? We tell ourselves. Maybe that's not realistic. Maybe someone who you know, makes you laugh once in a while and doesn't feel like a fire hose pouring into your heart and doesn't make you feel like a teenager falling in love all over again. You know, maybe there's a practical matter and you stay together for the kids or at least through college and maybe a little longer. And besides the dating pool is a nightmare and I don't want to go back to that. And all of these, um, you know, justifications and rationalizations. Because to really get to a soulmate or soul work, you have to usually use up rehearsals. Uh, you, you've got a, you're going to do, you're going to end up in something less than that. And uh, if somebody married their psych, high school sweetheart, I'd give it low odds that that's the one, but it does happen, but it does happen. Uh, and so you have to be willing to see the early versions of your mates and the early versions of your work as processing work, processing mates, rehearsals, relation, uh, uh, yeah, rehearsals. However, with an asterisk as big as my head. That does not mean you get to phone it in. That does not mean, in fact, it means the opposite. You relate to anything that you do and any relationship that you're in as if it is the one, as if it is your sole job, as if they are your sole mate, even if you know it isn't, even if you know it isn't. This to me is the essence of excellence. The essence of excellence means you fully invest in whatever you're invested in, whatever you choose. You fully inhabit the choice because even if you see this relationship has an expiration date, even if you see this job is just a means to an end, your soulmate or your soul work require all of you. It will require all of you. And when it happens, you're going to be barely able to handle it. So you earn that by 
making the ditch digging or the dating you're doing or whatever, you see it as an opportunity to better yourself in whatever way, shape or form that means. So that means like if the uh, economy tanks and you go from being a corporate lawyer to working at Walmart, you're the best frigging Walmart employee that company's ever seen. You don't relate to it as like, well, I'm actually a high-priced attorney and this is just what I have to do to put food on the table and so I can become a lawyer again. No, you're the best. You're the best. And the reason for that is not for anyone else because our conditioning around excellence, because we live in such a outwardly serving others conditioned society, is that excellence is for other people. Screw other people. The excellence is for you. Excellence is for you. Because if it's for other people, then you're going to need someone to pat you on the back. And we have a name for, for those people. They're called employees. If you need someone to pat you on the back, you're never going to be made a manager or become a leader because uh, the managers will see, oh, you use too much resources. And you won't be able to bear being a leader because it's one of the loneliest jobs in the world. Because there's nobody to go, at a boy, at a girl, good work, keep going. You're just on your own. It's truly lonely. So your passion path and or your soulmate, they're going to require everything from you and more stuff you don't even have. You're going to feel like you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So you need to start training yesterday, being able to bring all of you out, especially when it's not necessary, because that's how you draw it to you. The attitude of, which is very common in younger generations these days, where you have the younger generations graduating of an expensive university and then expecting to get $150,000 salary with no work experience, that's entitlement. They haven't earned it. They don't even know how to have a boss or to work with other people, and they're expecting these fancy jobs. You haven't earned it. You earn soulmates and you earn soul work by bringing excellence, by bringing full soulful inhabitation to everything that you do by making it a value so that you earn work that actually demands it. This is the same dynamic of if you want to get promoted, you act like the manager before you get the job. You do the better work before you get more money. But the entitled point of view is, well, I'll work harder when I get the promotion. I'll work harder. I'll take on these other responsibilities when I get paid more. Well, that would be nice in one way, but it's not how it works. It's not how life works. The cheetah that runs 59 miles an hour starves. The cheetah that runs 70 miles an hour eats. It's really simple. It's really simple. When the cheetah gets tired out because it can't run 70 miles an hour and it just goes hungry and it thinks like, okay, I mean, doesn't, I, don't, I don't think they think, but somehow it gets, that wasn't fast enough. Life doesn't go, oh, poor cheetah, you're so pretty and cute. Here's some free food. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. So in the same way, if you are with someone who is not your soul mate and doing something that is not your soul work, which is 90 plus percent of the uh, world, maybe even 99, life doesn't say, oh, poor you, you're stuck in this dead end job. I understand why you're not putting everything into it. 
I understand why it doesn't inspire you to do your best. Let me line up someone better, something better. Can you feel that's just counterintuitively not how it works? You don't earn it. And it's really easy to see that, I mean, from the cheetah to, you know, look at uh, the cliff face that, you know, only certain kinds of plants are able to grow on. But what if a weaker tree wants to grow on that cliff face? It looks kind of cool. It's over the water and there's lots of space. What about me? No, you're not strong enough to grow on this, grow on this cliff face. What are the plants that grow through the cracks in concrete? You ever seen like on a, an asphalt, a flower that comes through somehow, this asphalt? Do you realize how tough that plant must be to be able to do that? It earned that space. It earned it. And this is why it calls to de-hierarchicalize the world, which is becoming very popular in, on the liberal side of things, um, is problematic because you cannot, in my opinion, completely de-hierarchicalize everything because it's, it's just not how nature works. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. You can certainly make it a, a hell of a lot fairer uh, and make it so that it's a, it's a true meritocracy. And it's not just that people with the most money and power just automatically can get more money and power. That is problematic. But what people do is then they want the pendulum to swing to the other side and go, well, it's not fair. All these people have this uh, money and power. I mean, when I was just thinking about Amazon yesterday, just like Amazon's customer service is really good, right? Most of you probably had that experience. Do you know how many customer service people they must have? Like what? Like 10,000, 5,000, 10,000, something like that. Do you know how hard it is to train a low skill, lower wage employee to be a good customer service person? They figured it out. They figured that out. So in, I was just thinking like, wow, they really deserve, the, whoever figured that out deserves a lot of money. They figured out, here's 5,000 customer service people. I'm going to make them all so good that nobody ever has a bad customer service experience. Somebody solve that problem. They deserve a million dollars or whatever. They earned that because that's really hard to do. How do you know? Because call your insurance company or your bank or something and see how that goes. It won't be like Amazon. So this sense of earning, that's what's intrinsic in, in excellence. And it comes from a, uh, a healthy self-interest for your own fulfillment. Uh, a healthy self-interest for your own fulfillment is what ought to drive your passion for excellence, not for other people, not to look good, but it's an expression of you for you such that you trust that when you fully soulfully express as you in the world, it ripples out and it's going to come back. But even then, it's not about an investment and in outcome. You trust that it will come back, but you don't do it as a quid pro quo. You do it because doing less than your best feels shitty to the soul. It doesn't feel good. It makes you feel weak. And it colors all of your other activities. So doing your best is a self-expression issue. It should feel like, you know, painting a painting if you're a painter or writing a poem if you're a poet. It should feel like an artistic, creative expression of you. One, I mean, of, my, 
one of my close friends uh, quit his job as uh, a vice president of operations or something at a large medical outfit, many of whatever he was probably making, I don't know, three fifty, four hundred thousand a year, still a lot of money for a while. And he quit three years ago to become a high school basketball coach. <laughs> Kick ass. Yeah. He, um, he Probably makes a thousand dollars a semester. Or something. Uh, I think he makes 1500 a year and he has no other income. Now, granted, he made a lot of money as an executive and he's, he's about my age and, you know, he put some away and all that, but he bought a, a house next to the high school that he got the job at. And he's been doing it for three years and they just missed the state um, title by one game. So getting into state, like if they lost super close game, he called me the very next day and just wanted to chat. He was so amped about next season. He was like, oh, man, we got some summer. Hey, and doesn't your dad's uh, grandson play for this school in Spokane? Could you connect me so we could get a summer game going? And maybe like some, like within a second, mm-hmm. the guy who makes 1500 a year coaching high school basketball is ready for like the next thing. He's yeah. not even tired. Like he's amped. Yeah about the next season. And it was just, it was just beautiful to see. I'm like, wow, that I was jealous in that moment. I'm like, I am, I am jealous of, of you and your $1,500 high school basketball career. Right. Like, it was awesome. Yeah. Which any yeah. number of like, you know, think about the number of high school basketball coaches in the world where it's not their dream at all, but for this guy it is. And I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Ed, because aliveness is a really important uh, concept and feeling around both of these soulmate and soul work ideas. The soul is the, your seat of aliveness. So when you're doing something that is uh, is you, it makes you feel alive. And so if you're not doing something that is your soul work, if you're not doing something that is your uh, being with someone who is your soulmate, it's important to bring as much of your aliveness as you can And back to what Ed brought in the beginning, he was talking about the slog that by definition, if you feel like you're slogging through through something, that's a feeling of not aliveness, right? That's the opposite. Oh, this is just a dreary dredge of like, this sucks. That's not alive. So then the thing to do is to reframe. And granted, this is a mental thing, but it, you know, it can be deeper than that, but to reframe whatever you're doing as how are you developing the skills and experience so that you can prepare for what really is the alive soul thing for you. So um, my first marriage, for example, uh, we knew that it was not for the rest of our lives. The only reason we got married was because she was uh, in Europe and to stay in the country, we just had to. It was a real relationship, but she needed a visa for us to do it. And we both had the sense of that this was only gonna last a couple of years and that's what it ended up being. But it was absolutely vital to set me up for the relationships that would follow. They were, again, all rehearsals. The same way being a pure business coach was absolutely vital training to be able to go to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. It's almost impossible to really waste your time, um, but it is possible to not fully utilize it. And so that means that the whatever judgment you have about your partner or your job, revel in that reframe it, get into it. How, so this person is a pain in the ass. This job is a pain. Well, if you're with a person who's a pain in the ass, the first thing to ask is, am I different? 
or am I a pain in the ass in that way in some way? Because if you are, you haven't earned someone different. That's integrity. Integrity means you, you are not entitled to a person with a quality that you don't have. So you want them to be fit and you're not fit. Sorry. You don't, you haven't earned that. You want them to be a, a constant learner. Uh, then you're not, then you don't get that. You want them to be uh, amazingly attentive in bed and you're not, you don't get that. You only get to uh, integrity want what you have. Uh, same with, there's a correlate to work. Uh, you're not entitled to work that you haven't earned, that you haven't mastered. So you don't like a part of your job? Are you awesome at it? Are you a teacher of teachers at it? Kick that thing's ass. Otherwise, you're not qualified to complain about it. Because in the process of bringing excellence to whatever that thing is, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to um, change in some way. It's going to be a teacher for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't dislike it so much. So how is your job a teacher? How is your partner a teacher? Milk that for all it's worth. Then you can say, okay, I've gotten everything I possibly can out of this. I've put years into it. I've looked under every stone for where I might be playing victim. I've owned all of my stuff on the side. The other person hasn't changed or my boss still doesn't see how great I am. Fine. Then you've earned moving on. But in the end, life tells you that you've earned moving on. So uh, a, a year ago, I met who I think is the soulmate, the woman I'm supposed to be with for the rest of my life. Prior to that, I was single for seven years, which was five years longer than I'd ever been single before. It was grueling layers after layers of a, a loneliness and pain and despair. And at every landing, you know, there would sort of be a period and I would make peace with another level of aloneness. I'm like, okay, um, I've never been this okay alone in my life. It would last a month or two. I'm like, okay, I think maybe I'm done. Maybe I've earned my soulmate now. And then a whole other wave would happen. Like I'd go on a date or something or two, and then a trigger would come up and then it would be all another layer of despair would happen. This happened maybe a dozen times. And every time at these landings, like I said, well, maybe I'm ready to meet her. Maybe I'm ready. I think I'm ready. I'm ready. How did I know I wasn't ready? Because she didn't show up. That's how. <laughs> so life is the ultimate authority. So if your ideal partner doesn't show up or your ideal job doesn't show up, that's your feedback. You haven't earned it yet. You have to trust that and go back to work. The, the alternative is victimhood. You see, you have to assume that if it hasn't shown up, it's because you haven't earned it yet. Otherwise, you're playing victim. You know, to God, to life, to the universe, to divine intelligence. You do not want to play victim to that. That doesn't go well. Or you absolutely should go all the way into that paradigm and milk the playing victim to the universe that it's unfair and life's unfair and all of that and go all the way in and never give up on it, <laughs> in quotes, so that you can be spit out the other end and have to start taking real responsibility. Um, what you'll find is that it's, it's habit forming because there can be humps to get over, but the, 
the uh, aliveness is it's, it's alive. It's, it's fun. It's, it's fun doing a good job on stuff. It's, it's, you get to feel you, you get to experience you. Um, and so I don't really know why people wouldn't do this, but then again, on Enneagram three, we're kind of already preset toward excellence to begin with. So, um, yeah. Any questions, comments about any of this? Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.